Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and we have two guests today. They are the authors of a profoundly important new book called The Coming Interspiritual Age. Kurt Johnson is a scientist with a PhD in evolution, ecology, systematics, and comparative biology. He's also a spiritual teacher and a seminary professor ordained in three spiritual traditions and a leader in the consciousness and world shift movements. Kurt founded with pioneer interfaith leader brother Wayne Teasdale and others the Interspiritual Dialogue Association for discussion of contemplative experience across traditions. He has published over 200 articles on evolution and ecology, including the 2011 Harvard DNA sequence study vindicating Vladimir Nabokov's views of evolution. He is currently completing another book on Nabokov's art and science, but his primary interest is the simplicity of non-dual spiritual practice. The other author, David Robert Ord, is a former Presbyterian minister and graduate of San Francisco Theological Seminary. He's also an author, and his books include In the Beginning, Creation, The Priestly History, um, and Is the Bible True? Understanding the Bible Today, co-authored with Dr. Robert Coote. He also wrote Your Forgotten Self, Mirrored in Jesus the Christ, and Finding Self, Finding Love. He is currently editorial director for Namaste Publishing, publishers of Eckhart Tolle. Gentlemen, welcome. Nice to be here today. Well, you have certainly put me on my mettle today to even begin to do justice to the scope of your book. It's, it's vitally important message is something that is so needed today, and I'm really honored to have you with us. Let's start with the personage of Brother Wayne Teasdale. Please tell us a little bit about him and his vision around the concept of interspirituality. Well, you know, it's interesting that Wayne did a, a very pivotal thing historically. Uh, the background of this epiphenomena that we're speaking to that's now called interspirituality is that obviously, you know, from the time of the Axial Age, when the world's major influential religions uh, appeared on the scene, you had several centuries of building those quite different views and stories about reality, but within them was a thread of recognizable unity. And as David and I show in our book, there were other spokespersons across all the religions that already we're seeing those interconnections and predicting that as human history went along, those would become more pivotally important. So Wayne Teasdale then, following really in the tracks of Bede Griffiths and Thomas Merton and Raymond Panikkar and others who had been modern bridge builders across traditions, Christianity and Buddhism, Christianity and Hinduism, he recognized from these personal associations that he had had and where history was going, that it was time to name this central core of the unifying aspects of all the religions in values and ethics, but particularly in the mystical comprehension of oneness and profound interconnectedness. So his book, The Mystic Heart, subtitled Discovering a Universal Spirituality in the World's Religions, 1999, 
was really then the beginning of this sense and the beginning of this discussion at a global level about an emerging universal spirituality and what that would look like. And so his book then named that as inner spirituality. And as David and I said in our book, it was a little bit like when Darwin finally put a, a very succinct and cogent buzzword on evolution by means of natural selection. It became a game changer because it crystallized uh, a new way of thinking that wasn't new but was coming of age. So that's really what Wayne did. He, he took this thing that was backgrounding as a trend globally, brought it to the forefront, put a searchlight on it, and of course he was on the board of the Parliament of the World Religions, so he was very well positioned to do that. So as of about 10 years, this vision of emphasizing the coherent unity that's in all of our spiritual understanding historically began to emerge. And now, as you've said, Miriam, that's truly come of age, and it's what is really, you know, cresting in this in this new wave. Mm. I find it so intriguing that uh, he, plus some of the others you mentioned, like Bede Griffiths and and all of those who were attracted to him, um, come from either Catholic or monastic traditions. Do you have any insight as to why they would be so active in this? Yeah, and then I'll let David uh, jump in here, too, so that I'm not uh, dominating. But, yeah, it's really because the contemplative pursuit, the monastic pursuit, really goes deep into the human consciousness and the human heart and then starts to ask the question, you know, what is it that we all are? What is it that we're all made of? And what what are the implications of that? So it's really, it was at that contemplative core that Hindus and Buddhists and Sufis and Christians and Kabbalist Jews and go through all the mystical traditions, they were coming to the common understanding that this deepest experience is about profound interconnectedness and there being no separation, that nothing is separate. So when these people started to be able to meet, let's say through the Snowmass dialogues that Father Keating and the Dalai Lama started or through the monastic interreligious initiative that Bede and Wayne were a part of, or what's the modern contemplative alliance, once these people could meet and talk across traditions, they could, you know, very clearly identify that this this was an experience about reality and the unity of reality, and not just about uh, religious stories, dogmas, or creeds. And, and that was happening at the same time that, you know, science and economics and all the other factors that are steering toward inevitable globalization and the inevitable reality of multiculturalism were also coming of age historically. So all of this, as David and I said in the book, is all of this is converging. And what we tried to do was then really spotlight all of those trends. I think I would uh, add to that that... um... I grew up Protestant, beginning in the Church of England in Northern England, and um, yet the theologians who have most influenced me over the uh, last many years, um, from when I moved really away from uh, Protestantism and certainly from fundamentalism, which I got into in my teens, have been Catholic, uh, predominantly. There are exceptions, but predominantly Catholic or something close to it such as uh, the Episcopal Church, which is not that far from it in in some ways. 
So um, perhaps one reason for this is the fact that the number of Catholics in the world is astronomical compared to any of the other faiths. And I think we often forget that when we live in um, a culture that tends to think of itself as not predominantly Catholic, and yet Catholics are the largest number. So just that fact alone um, is bound to have thrown up many theologians who uh, begin to think in new ways, and that's where most of my influence has come from. And, well, and I, it's interesting, I was going to say it's interesting because David was leading toward this, that we, we, we don't want to forget how pivotal Vatican II was to this whole phenomenon. Historically, the West, particularly since the Second World War, has taken the lead in the sense of what was going on historically. And when the Roman Catholic Church uh, did Vatican II, there was an emergence of what I think, Miriam, you saw in the book, which was called the Foundationalist Discussion. And it was an invitation from the Vatican to all the world's religions to start talking about what were the foundations in common across all the traditions. Now, as you know, that became such a fruitful discussion that it actually in the long run scared the Vatican. And in the 1980s, the Vatican actually shut those discussions down. They shut down the liberation theology discussions. They shut down the foundationalist discussion and kind of went out on the tangent that, uh, particularly with Pope Benedict, was much more conservative. But that pivotal era where Vatican II happened really started the invitation. And if you really look at what, let's say, the Parliament of World Religions, the Temple of Understanding, uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, a lot of leaders in India, there were many, many gatherings immediately after Vatican II in which this new conversation was uh, started. Yes, that's very fascinating. The other thought that occurred to me was what you describe as the magic mystical lens. And I'm wondering whether Catholicism was perhaps um, a more welcoming vessel for the magical mystical side of spirituality than, say, uh, you know, Protestantism. And uh, perhaps that also predisposed uh, Catholic theologians to expand into what you called the heart-centered aspect rather than the rational-centered aspect? You know, I think the answer to that is, is a very interesting yes and no, because I think everybody who is honest about history knows that, let's say, uh, the Catholic traditions, be they Orthodox, Roman, Anglican, or whatever they were, yes, they've had this depth in which this contemplative sense of the heart and consciousness, you know, from Meister Eckhart to John of the Cross to Teresa of Avila to Bede Griffiths to Wayne Teasdale to Thomas Merton, Raymond Panagard, go through the whole list. And these were the people then that when they engaged with Buddhists, as Merton did, or they engaged with the mystical Hindu traditions, as Griffiths and Teasdale and, and Panagard did, this became very fruitful. But we also know that the other side of Catholicism, which was mired in the, the downside of the magic mythic lens, which is to think that only a certain thing is true. Well, from that came the Inquisition. So <laughs> these, these are the two tendencies in humanity and in human consciousness that are actually, in a sense, competing. The, the, ones that, the one that wants to live in boxes 
and protect those boxes, which ends up, like David said, with fundamentalism, or let's say really the worst abuses of the Inquisition era. But the other tendency that human beings have is toward open inquiry and toward this search for the fundamental freedom of who we are in consciousness and heart. And those, those have been having a very long historical dialogue. And it, it, actually, if you're honest about it, even in the secular world, it mirrors the secular conversation that goes back between peace and war. And, you know, the whole thing that even Barack Obama in his Nobel laureate speech had to address is, you know, how, how does humanity balance this, this thing about peace and war, or even the idea that war can help foster peace? You know, these, these paradoxes in who we are are incredibly profound, and I think they're part of what's playing out at this time. And like David said, if any of us look at the microcosm of our own journeys, probably anyone even listening to this broadcast, they'll see that they themselves went through many of these stages moving to a higher and higher level of integration, hopefully. You know, when I look at my own journey, I think about the people who have most influenced me, who were Catholic or close to it, and I would have to probably go back to Hans Kung a long time ago now. But there was someone who, you know, was rejected by the authorities. And then Pierre Tejada de Chardin, who, after my fundamentalism collapsed about 35 years ago, um, it was Pierre Tejada de Chardin's uh, phenomenon of man. We would now uh, translate that to uh, the human phenomenon, perhaps. But um, it was that that gave me a new worldview that replaced the old certainty worldview that I grew up in. And uh, then I look at that perhaps more influence has come to me from a, a monk who's now in his mid-90s at Downside Abbey in England, and that is Sebastian Moore. And the, the, um, not the present pope, but the pope just before him, who retired, was actually, um, when he was in charge of the doctrine of the church, going after Sebastian also. He had him on his hit list. So it's these people who have had the time to contemplate and come into the heart position, and then also the time to write it, to expound it, that have perhaps influenced so many of us. Mm. Yeah, and, and what's interesting about that is it really sets the tone of where this convergence is going. At, at the end of August, about 30 different leaders in this emerging interspiritual phenomena gathered in New York City. They actually came here at their own expense, stayed with family and friends, and we shot about 30 videos, which very soon, if anybody listening to this broadcast, very soon if you go to YouTube and just search interspirituality, you're going to see about 30 new videos about people giving their different view of what's emerging here. And one of the points that was very clearly made, and it's so germane, uh, Miriam, to the question that you asked and what we're talking about, is that when you take the word transform and you really see that it contains the two parts, transform, that's what's actually happening at a global level. And David was just reflecting this because this is what Kung was doing and actually in why the Vatican was uh, you know, going after these people. They were trying to become free of being bound by a certain form. Religion so far, when it comes to not only creeds and doctrines, but ideas of ultimate salvation or damnation, all the things that feed the fear factor in, in humanity, have tended to be bound by forms. 
And so somebody like Pope Benedict, when he was going after different people, it was to protect the form. And what the new message is saying is that spirit is formless, and the implications of spirit as formless is to predict that the future of religion and spirituality is transformed. And it doesn't mean that we won't have forms. Obviously, we'll have forms. But it means we won't be bound by forms, Mm -hmm. that the forms will actually be serving us, and we won't be serving the forms. And this this is an evolutionary breakthrough. And I would say that maybe half of the people who made these videos in late August, this is what they were speaking to. What does it mean to be a Buddhist, a Presbyterian, a Muslim, or whatever we've been, and to understand what it means to, to go transform so that forms are serving us and we're not serving forms. It's very interesting for me to just uh, reflect on that back again to, to the journey that I've gone on because I think it, it's sort of a, a microcosm of what's happening on the macrocosm in terms of the journey humanity is taking. Uh, the forms, the rigid forms that don't like freedom, um, don't like questions. They want you to simply come, pay, and pray. And when you begin to question, you're in trouble. So I remember in my deepest fundamentalist days, there were people who sometimes they would question, and they were banned from our group. No one was allowed to question. And they used to tell us, if you once begin to question, you are going to allow the devil in, and that wedge will open up until you don't believe in anything at all. Well, you know what? Looking back some 40 years, they were right. Because I'm not attached to any rigid form anymore, but have come into a heart spirituality that can also, as is described in um, oh, uh, Stages of Faith, Fowler's classic book, where you go through the different stages. Most of us are stuck on stage three, but we can move to where a Gandhi got to, stage six, of which you can embrace the spirituality in whatever form it comes. So I can today go back to the Episcopal Church and worship. I can go in a Catholic church and worship. I can go in a Buddhist monastery. I can go into almost any kind of form today and hear it from the heart instead of from a boxed-in intellect. And that's the result of doing the thing that's forbidden, questioning. You know, and and it's interesting, David, and it goes back to Miriam's question about Wayne Teasdale, is it's exactly that that is the reason that Wayne said in one of his most really profound iconic statements that the only viable religion for the third millennium is spirituality itself. And spirituality itself that holds the depth of that experiential reality that David was just talking about that's about profound interconnectedness and oneness and love and kindness and everything that that implies and holds that as the major thing as opposed to any uh, dogma, creed, or form that would want to want to hold that. And that in a globalizing world, in an inevitably multicultural world, if Homo sapiens is going to make it as a species, it's going to have to make that anthropological leap to having spirituality itself be the religion in which there's this incredible freedom of movement and diversity, the incredible smorgasbord of what Wayne called the wisdom resources of all the traditions that are available, all the practices, all the music, all, you know, go through the whole list. 
And so there's a possibility, you know, again, what Ken Wilber calls the conveyor belt, that the great wisdom traditions could offer humanity to get to this place. And I think that that's the central challenge. When David and I were pointing out the the underpinning of the globalization under this, and then Cosmos Journal actually picked up on that with seven points about how globalization was driving this challenge to what spirituality will uh, become, it was really you know putting that in into focus. And I think it's that was what we see people gathering around. There was a big component that comes out of the evangelical Christian background that participated in this um, gathering we had in, in late August where we made these uh, videos. And this was the part that they could completely relate to without thinking that they were in any way, not only that they were not abandoning Jesus of Nazareth, but that they were actually getting closer to what Jesus of Nazareth was actually talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, Teasdale spoke of spiritual awakening of humanity as being the definitive revolution for our species. Um, is that what his Omega vision c- conveys? Yeah, a- absolutely. If you look at even his Omega vision, which was a personal experience that that it would be impossible to summarize in any concept or dogma or theology the depth of this thing that we all feel in the heart and consciousness, and that that creates a humility where everyone has to sit really serving that fundamental recognition of who we all are instead of trying to serve this or that idea about it. So basically he was saying, you know, both, you know, yes, at the personal level, people need to have that epiphany. And what's interesting, when you look at statistics, and I think, Miriam, you notice there are a lot of statistics in our book, and those have continued to increase since we wrote the book. Like right now, the statistic on younger people in the West that consider themselves spiritual but not religious is up near 75%. And even in polls in mainland China, which would at least officially be a secular atheist country, if you ask people questions at the level of idealism, those numbers are extremely high, well over 50-60% of younger people who have these high ideals and high hopes for what humanity might become. And then there's one other statistic that's interesting um, that I've been pointing out recently, and that is that less than 35% of religious adherents in any cultural sphere are actually practicing the old-time religion of that culture. So what that's doing is it's setting the stage for what's going to emerge. And uh, in October, Matthew Fox and I and Adam Bucko and uh, Rory McKinty, who've been working with Father Thomas Keating, we're going to be speaking at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in San Jose about this emerging universal spirituality. You know, what is this emerging spirituality? There's something I think everybody agrees on. It's artistic. It has to do with this new sense of a unit of consciousness, which is, you know, what's happening in the new science, and it's also happening, uh, you know, across uh, all the spiritual traditions. Well, you know, we want to, you know, talk about that. What is that? I think everyone is feeling now that that universal spirituality, which was actually in the subtitle of Wayne's book in 1999, is actually emerging. You know, Kurt mentioned about uh, China and the different spirit uh, emerging there. And uh, I was in China twice in the last uh, year, 
And uh, I was surprised at Christmas to see how uh, Christmassy China was. (laughs) (laughs) There were symbols of Christmas, not so much Jesus, but of Christmas just everywhere. Uh, The stores, the hotels, and so forth, very Christmassy. Um, But I think what we're talking about here is the humanizing of humanity. We have been a very dehumanized species in so many ways. And what we're seeing now is the heart rather than dogma. Dogma tends to define us, define other people as either in or out, clean or unclean, pure or impure. But um, we're seeing now the heart coming to the fore. And it's a spirituality that is based on the fact that we are all interconnected. Science itself is now showing us. We know now that the entire fabric of the cosmos is one almost like a a huge blanket, a sheet. Uh, Every part of it, there are ripples in the sheet that give us the different forms, but it's just one sheet of reality. That is such a different view from the Newtonian world in which a planet out there was a planet floating out in nothing and in no way connected to everything else. And so that interconnectedness is what's happening now among the young people everywhere. I see a huge change in the attitude of young people. In fact, someone said to me, two people said to me just within the past few days, I can't wait for the generation before us to pass because they're the ones that were holding us down to the rigidity. And I think that humanizing involves a sense of the basic goodness of humanity Whereas what much of religion has fed over the millennia is a sense that there's something fundamentally wrong with us that needs to change. And in fact, what needs to change is the belief that there's something wrong with us so that our true humanity that is the heart, that is the way we are in our innermost spirit and consciousness can begin to flourish. That is, I think, what we're seeing coming to the fore everywhere. That's interesting because it reminds me of a question in the Talmud, why did it take 40 years for the Jews to make their way from Egypt through the Sinai into the Promised Land, which could have taken two weeks? Um, And the response was that they were waiting for the generation that was raised in slavery to die out. Well, there's a lot of truth to that. I would add to it um, that Eckhart Tolle's concept of the pain body. Eckhart Tolle, you know, The Power of Now, his mm-hmm. second book, um, um, Stillness Speaks, and his third one, um, A New Earth. He's our flagship author at Namaste Publishing. And he just stays, if you, if you talk to Eckhart, he stays with the main thing of the heart of spirituality, of consciousness living in the now and doesn't get into dogma and speculations and all that kind of thing. And I, I think we're seeing that sense growing. We're seeing it right here in America. We're seeing it all over the globe. That sense of people connecting, that sense of people caring about one another, that sense of people valuing each other. And what holds us back from that is what Eckhart calls the pain body. And the pain body is this this mental concept, this emotional reactivity side of us that feels bad from all the things we've been taught and the ways we've been treated that made us feel bad. And um, much of religion has majored on that. If you look at the longest, what is the longest time of celebration in the Christian church? It's Lent, 40 days of it. 
heck, I mean, you know, <laughs> we can celebrate <laughs> Christmas and Easter for a few days. And, and so we major in feeling bad. We major in something being wrong with us. And what this whole interspirituality movement is doing is drawing out the humanity within us that feels the connection, feels the love, and reintroduces the joy that we knew as children, but that we have lost touch with, and that comes back to us and begins to connect us in a marvelous new kind of civilization once we open up to it. And it's interesting, just to revert to what Miriam had said about younger people and David, that um, a new book now by our friends uh, Matthew Fox and Adam Bucko, which just came out last week. Uh, Occupy, Occupy Spirituality. Yes, I'm interviewing yeah. them shortly. Oh, good, yeah. And, and what's interesting, the subtitle, of course, is A Radical uh, Vision for a New Generation. What's interesting is the vision is not, is not new. It's just that it's coming of age, and what's really nice about what Matt and Adam have done is that they've brought that conversation in a dialogue form, um, you know, to you know, to the fore in their book to, to, to really ask, like David was saying, what is this going to look like, and and what are its char- characteristics? So it's just um, it's going to be very very interesting to see. We have a conference coming up now uh, with about 200 of us in this interspiritual phenomenon at Cascadia, Washington. Actually, again, oddly, at a Roman Catholic interfaith center there between Vancouver and Seattle. And the conference is called the Dawn of Interspirituality. Um, if anyone wants to look into it, you can go to satyana.org. That's S-A-T-Y-A-N-A dot org. And this is precisely, it's, gonna, it's not going to be like an old-time conference where people are talking at each other all the time, but it's, gonna, it's really a um, gathering of people who are in this growing stream and really then wanting to, uh, together, vision what this is trying to do, what's wanting to unfold, and how we uh, assist that. And we're actually thinking that, a, that an international association to kind of further coordinate uh, how this vision is unfolding worldwide will emerge from that gathering. And we've, again, been just unbelievably gratified by the number of, quote-unquote, major people who, uh, by hook or by crook, are, are, are getting there so that they can talk about this uh, you know, in person and up close and personal, actually for an entire week. Well, Brother Teasdale said... Um, that you need head, heart, and hands, which is this movement into practice. So it's wonderful to hear all of the uh, initiatives that are ongoing to actually make this work and bring it into the world. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead, David. It's interesting that some of these initiatives are happening in a very subtle way that actually have nothing to do with the movement itself, but it shows that this heart spirituality, this sense of connectedness, instead of the disconnectedness and the threatened feeling that has so dominated human history, one nation against the other, one group against another, and so forth, is actually emerging on the world scene. And, and it's creating a clash. If you look what's been happening with the situation with Syria here, here I know that Russia has its own motives and so forth, but, but one of the things Russia doesn't want to see is um, a, a massive disruption 
um, with a tide of uh, vehement fundamentalism uh, near its borders. And there is the sense, uh, you know, of, is there some other way to work this thing out other than it leading to massive uh, conflict? Well, how interesting it is that when you tune into the talk shows about this here in the United States, um, the whole issue is, well, is President uh, Obama's power as a president at stake? Is, is, that, is this going to tarnish his reputation if this doesn't work? And it's all so egoic. Sometimes when I listen to these, um, these talking heads and I hear how egoic this approach is, and yet here in practice, there is this sense of we can't resolve things in the old way. We have to begin to talk and to understand, yes, to come from positions of strength, but we have to begin to work together in more peaceful modes. And I think that that is reflected in the attitude of the American people, which has had enough of wars and stuff, and, and, and is ready for a different approach that it can't define yet, but that is creeping up on us anyway. One of the things that I was contemplating reading your book was that we seem to be moving from an era where the individual religions and sects believe that that they have the truth into being open to the possibility that we have a truth, which is not negated by somebody else's truth. Yeah, absolutely. And see, what's interesting, as we point out, that's this evolution from the magic mythic lens, which would want to know who's right and who's got the magic and whose side is God on, to the holistic and integral lens, which is actually what's been evolving in the last decades, which then... You know, as Ken Wilber says, it has this sense of the sliding scale reality where you are open to all of the resources available and all the possibilities, and that doesn't threaten um, who you are. And when Ken and I did this uh, discussion, that's uh, if you go to the uh, ComingInnerSpiritualAge.com website, uh, one of the first uh, audios there is a, is a long discussion with Ken Wilber and, and myself. And what he, what Ken really emphasizes that this is a matter of consciousness. Anybody who's in the consciousness of, let's say, those of us on this call, which we, let's say, call it second-tier consciousness, it's easy for us to understand how we can hold this much larger vision of diversity and, and the resources that are there without it threatening where we're rooted. If you're still in the old first-tier consciousness, then it's not a matter of being rooted, like Wayne Teasdale said. It's a matter of being stuck. And you're so concerned, as David was saying, about the safety of your own box that you don't have that internal freedom to go to this larger world of freedom and, and wider resources. And that's the evolution that's going on in the species. I think you saw in the book that we talk a lot about what the cognitive sciences are, are learning now in brain-mind studies, and again, they're identifying this, this transition out of the consciousness of separation and parochial boxes, you know, ethnic, racial, sexual preference, you know, every place that people could parse out, and that the natural trend is going toward this sense of togetherness, mutuality, we, whatever we want to call that, and that's emerged in the Arab Spring, it's emerged in what's called the Catholic Spring now, it's emerged in Occupy, 
it's emerged in the entire, you know, interspiritual movement, evolutionary consciousness movement, sacred activism movement. And, and so what's it, what it is doing is actually reflecting that evolution in the consciousness of not needing to be held by those old, uh, those old boxes. In the Syria situation, in the Iran situation, you see uh, this, this need to be right. Uh, wh why does it have to be one wins and the other loses? Why can it not be that we're all trying to hammer something out together? Uh, the Europeans, the Americans, the Russians, all the parties involved uh, are trying to put their best ideas with their own concerns involved naturally, but they're trying to hammer something new out. I, I think we're sensing this at another level, too. We're about to come up to this huge budget debate here in the United States. And it's, it's obviously it's going to be all out warfare. But does it have to be? Or can we listen to what, even though the American public can't articulate it, there is this sense of dissatisfaction with this old one party warring against the other and a sense of why can we not come together to find solutions that work for everyone. I think democracy has been so greatly misunderstood. It has been interpreted as democracy. If we've got 51%, we have the right to tell the other 49% what to do. That's not, not democracy, that's democracy. And I think what's, what's emerging now through the interspiritual movement, but also at this other level through society, through this new humanity that is arising in the newer generations, is this sense that we've got to take care of the needs of everyone. Democracy looks at the whole picture and cares for everyone and how can we best serve the whole rather than my way being right and imposing it on you. I thought it was amusing that you pointed out that the first really true democracy arose among pirates. <laughs> it did. Yeah, and for a very pragmatic reason, as we pointed out, that they would elect the person who they trusted would actually share honestly with everyone else uh, uh, the goodies of <laughs> the spoils. <laughs> but what's interesting, you know, paralleling that, you know, this pragmatic approach, you know, I think many of you know David Corton's work, um, you know, The Great Turning and Agenda for a New Economy and When Corporations Rule the World, and that his work now is all around uh, changing the fundamental view of cosmology that everyone has. And it's, per it's precisely pointing to what you and David were talking about, <clears throat> is creating a cosmology on the street that points toward the mutual well-being of everyone instead of the cosmology of who is right or who comes out um, you know, on, on top. And uh, th there again, that's, uh, you know, again, expressing the same desire for this change. I'm on several committees at the UN, and it's very interesting that one of the things that they're mentioning now is that, you know, here was Doug Hammarskjöld, who did so much to try to engender the beginning of what a civil, global civilization might look like. And yet, his deep spiritual life in his book markings he not only didn't even want that published or it wasn't widely talked about at the time it was unfashionable to mix what you were feeling at this deeper level with what you were doing in the secular world now what's interesting now and this is a tangible conversation in the UN community now is that his book markings which is about his spiritual experience about all this and why he was driven to, to be the leader that he was, 
is is now being widely talked about and discussed in the UN community, and and part of that is because of this this confrontation between these two ways of doing things. For instance, at the UN, you've got the the NGO community, the, the all the do good organizations who are on the side of creating a world that is about everyone's well-being. And then you've got the secretariat, where the sad fact is that maybe well over 50% of the governments in the world are dictatorships. And they are not interested in this other conversation because they're trying to protect the wealth of their narcissistic leader or their narcissistic uh, you know, clique, whatever it is. And this dynamic at the UN when you work there is is very very visible I'll give you a good example we had put together a a multi-faith program on sustainability that was a real powerhouse and it also involved a training program and it was interesting that the secretariat came in and actually f- shut that initiative down we were not allowed to do it because it was so threatening to the dictatorships in the political side at the UN that they honestly couldn't have anything like this threatening, um, you know, this or that dictator. So this this confrontation globally now is is very very real. Echoes of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, we have avoided talking about something that you actually go into fairly extensively in your book, which is the greed of corporations. Um, how does this commercial greed affect or reflect a spiritual disconnect in our society? Well, let me say one thing, and then I'm going to ask David to come in on it. This gets talked about a lot because, for instance, as we mentioned in this area of science, the cognitive science of religion, that really is asking what are the chances that our species will survive as opposed not to survive, really identifies this this narcissistic tendency that's built into how humans have operated because we've come out of these deeply tribal and overly identified types of backgrounds. And it really, you know, points out that that tendency to fixate on the, as David said, the egoic, which is where the greed would come from, you know, what's mine, what I get, how I get that at other people's expense. That's a way of being, you know, coming out of, the worst parts of how nature's put together and instead of some animals eating other animals and, and blah, blah, blah. And the question which actually Teilhard was asking, when you enter the new sphere, when you come out of the bio, biosphere and you enter the noosphere, then you're asking what's the kind of consciousness that can do this in a different way. So what's, what's actually happening is a gigantic evolutionary challenge to the species to get allow that egoic and that narcissistic tendency to fade into the background. Now, the problem is, and then I'll, uh, you know, pass this, pass the ball, is that so many people with those tendencies gravitate to leadership positions, both in the business community and in the political community, because the whole atmosphere and culture is one of greed and power and, you know, outdoing someone else at, at their expense. And I think, you know, from Paul Hawken all the way over to our book, and certainly David Corton's work, Charles mm-hmm. Eisenstein, clearly identify that probably the worst offenders, almost like a cancer on the system right now, are the folks in the, in, in, in the financial community who are all about greed 
and don't realize that that is not sustainable. It is simply, even for pragmatic reasons, not, not sustainable. Yeah. I wrote a book about 10 or 11 years ago. It's still available on Amazon.com. It, it's called Alligators in Evening Dress. And um, it, it's about uh, relationships, uh, male, female, gay, so forth, but wherever people are connecting in, in intimate relationships and how we have this uh, evolutionary background that's not that different from an alligator that if you get close to it is going to snap at you or if you step in the way of a rattlesnake as I live here in Phoenix and have to watch when I'm climbing in the mountains, you're going to get bitten. Uh, that's a part of us, but we have evolved a brain that is capable of seeing that behavior and realizing it's not productive and then doing a better way. Now, when I was in China, both these times, um, I met with the um, general manager of the, um, let me think of which hotel it is, the Crown Plaza in Jinan City. And I, was, I stayed there for almost two weeks at one point, and I was so impressed by the completely different attitude of every single member of the staff of this hotel and of the general manager himself, it was different from any other hotel I had ever stayed in. So I asked him if I could talk to him, and I interviewed him. And then I went back to see him again um, just a few weeks ago. And we have just published that interview as part of our latest online magazine, uh, Namaste Insights. It's on issue, issuu.com. But if you go to namastepublishing.com, you can find our, our fall issue, and that interview is in there. And this hotel manager has come to realize and, and said that more and more are realizing that in the long run, things don't work unless you care about your staff because then they're going to care about your people and your organization and your business are going to thrive. Mm -hmm. And the approach, like we're seeing in the Walmarts of the world and, and the fast food industry, which has been under fire from some of its employees lately, uh, cutting people's hours, paying them as little as we can get by with what's the going rate, how little can I pay instead of how much can I afford to pay. This lack of caring ultimately isn't going to work. Now, what yeah. it does do, what the corporation is doing right now, is it is, it is forging these huge connections across the globe. And sometimes evolution works in some quite mysterious ways. It works with the alligator part first, and then comes the evening dress. And I think that we can look at the alligator nature of many of the corporations today, but they don't realize that what is being seeded is a connectivity. I was just looking the other day at this um, launching of the Apple latest iPhones into China and this, inter this interpenetration of societies now at every level. And just look at the fact that many of the movements that we're seeing today weren't possible before the Internet. And the Internet, you look at the situation in India where this young woman some months ago of 23 years of age was raped and then murdered. It created an outrage. But what it has started through the Internet is a huge discussion of the terrible way India tends to treat its women. So all of these things are, are gradually seeding a new mentality, which is of the heart, into societies and connecting us across the globe. We will see a lot of snake strikes and a lot of alligator snaps before this is over. Indeed. But we have to look at the bigger picture. 
And one of the operative solutions you offer is moving into holarchy versus hierarchy and, and building circles through which to connect. But even those circles you talk about as being, as needing some kind of charismatic leader or, or someone to hold the vision. Well, at least initially, what's interesting about holarchical circles is that what they try to do is, is instead of saying that they're the sum total of the egos in the room, they try to identify what they call the evolutionary purpose of the circle, and then they try to ask, what are the suite of skills across all the people in the circle that by really intricately passing the hats around in the sense of who does what, they can, what they call, dynamically steer toward this evolutionary purpose. Now, I think a lot of people may or may not be in, uh, know about the experiment in Bhutan right now, which many people at the UN are looking to. Now, Bhutan's a relatively small country, and I'll say this briefly because I see we're getting uh, near the end here. But what Bhutan has done is they've said, we're going to set a national goal of the well-being of our people at the level of health, education, happiness, economics, and so on. And then we're going to say that every policy that we make as a government is reverse-engineered from those mutually shared goals. Now, that's very, very interesting because it's the opposite of what's happened with Again, what David Corton says, it's not capitalism itself it's, that's the problem. It's the abuse of capitalism that's the problem. And so to go to a vision of, of the health of the entire people and then make all policies in relation to that is totally revolutionary. Let's say, if you look how the Republicans and the Democrats, <laughs> you know... Indeed. Indeed. And this is probably as good a note as we will find to draw to a close. Um, a, a government based on the good of the people. And the, uh, we have like one minute for each of you to give us a closing comment. Well, first, I just want to thank you, Miriam, and also New Consciousness Review. Uh, the number of people that are catching on to this vision, which they realize isn't new, all David and I have done is kind of bang the drum very loudly from kind of one corner of the stadium. And we're so grateful to every venue that's catching this vision and recognizing that it's really their own. So that's my takeaway, and a big thank you, you know, to you and to, uh, to a New Consciousness Review. Well, you know, of the people, by the people, for the people, depends at what level the people are at. <laughs> that can be pretty horrendous. And uh, But if we were to move to of human consciousness, by human consciousness, for human consciousness, what a different society and different world we would have. As they say, from your lips to God's ear. <laughs> May I thank you, gentlemen. We've been speaking with Kurt Johnson and David Robert Ord about their book, The Coming Interspiritual Age. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. You can find Kurt and David's book, as well as all the links that they mentioned, on our website, ncreview.com. Our guest next week is going to be Kahu Fred Sterling talking about his book, Signature Cell Healing. And now we're going to close with our track of the week called 
Time for Joy by Sue Hodge. It's time for joy. It's time for joy. Keep the home fires burning. Come to the hearth in prayer. Heart to heart. I hear what I hear. Keep my ear to the ground. It's time for joy. So many roads, so many choices, so many souls, so many voices. When it's hard to listen, when it's hard to hear, I just sit myself down and I find you near. It's time for joy. It's time for joy. It's time for joy. It's time for joy. Reaches out like a golden prairie. The sun rises high before moving on. Then the ground reaches out and gathers it home. Keep the home fires burning. Come to the hearth and. I hear what I hear. Keep my ear to the ground. Tend to the soil. Nourish my soul. It's time for joy. It's time for joy. It's time for joy. It's time for joy by Sue Hodge from Edmonton, Alberta. Sue's website is soundtouch.ca. Well, I hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. It's time for two.